Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast, where we talk to people who matter about the things that matter in the world of financial services. I'm Brandon Russell, online writer here at IFA Magazine, and joining me on the podcast this week is our editor, Sue Whitbread. Hello, everyone. And as Brandon said, thanks again for joining us. We really do appreciate you tuning in. And this week, we've invited back a guest from one of our most popular podcasts from 2023. In fact, this is his third podcast with us, so he must be good. And it's Jordan Sriharan. Uh, Jordan is a fund manager at Canada Life Asset Management. And let's face it, with so much uncertainty ahead, we're quite keen to hear his latest thinking on asset allocation, on investment strategy decisions for 2024, and some other little goodies too. So welcome back to you, Jordan. We're really looking forward to talking to you again. Hi, Sue. Hi, Sue. Hi, Brandon. Yep. Lovely to see you again. Happy New Year. Can't wait to chat. Good. Uh, likewise. Jordan, maybe before we get going on the questions for any of our listeners today who may not have heard the pre- previous podcasts that uh, we've done with you, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about you and what you do at Canada Life, just to set the scene. Sure. My name is Jordan Sriharan. I'm one of the fund managers here at Canada Life Asset Management, working exclusively on the multi-asset fund range here. I've been at Canada Life for just over two and a bit years, and prior to that was head of the model portfolio services at Canaccord Genuity. Excellent. I think that gives us all the picture. Definitely does. So firstly, Jordan, welcome back again. That conversation we had about theory versus reality in, in investment management really went down well with our audience. So for this year then, where are you seeing the strongest potential for long-term investment opportunities and where are the main challenges? Do you have any advice for advisors looking to navigate uncertainty in 2024? Thanks, Brandon. Great question. Happy New Year to you. Good to, good to talk again. It, the... Um, yeah, maybe if I start with the challenges part first, because I think it's really important to to address um, where the challenges are today. And and if I think back to the start of last year, we were this is 2023. We were of a let's call it a bearish mindset. We 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 thought that after a year of well the fastest rate of of interest rate increases for a generation, we 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 thought that there was um, kind of recession on the cards and and you know that which which would lead to weaker consumer spending, job losses, and unemployment being higher. But I think the challenges are are good for us to address again today because what have we learned from from last year and what were the challenges that we face? Well, the reality is that, and this comes back a little bit to the reality versus theory podcast that we spoke about before, is that the economic textbook does work with a delay. We knew that, but those delays have been magnified by you know, almost a decade of, of QE and low interest rates. And it's actually really interesting to talk about um, the challenges that we thought we faced by the consumer, but in reality, have almost been swept aside over, over the last year. And I think what's interesting is how resilient the consumer has been in 2023. Um, and we're not suggesting that there is a lack of sensitivity to higher interest costs, but for lots of consumers, high mortgage costs haven't necessarily immediately impacted their ability to spend if you think about the rule of three in in the uk property market where a third of people rent a third of people have a mortgage and a third don't have a mortgage at all 
it's that third in the middle that have a mortgage that have been that have been impacted. But as we spoke about before, not all of them are, are on are on floating rate mortgages, and so the sensitivity of the UK consumer to, to interest rates is just not as deep as it was previously. And obviously, as as times change and as as rates become higher, we'll see a change in in the makeup of fixed versus floating rate um, mortgage holders. But it's not even just the consumer that's been resilient. Indeed, large corporates have been extremely resilient to the the the, the higher interest um, rate environment we've been in. And if we think about what a lot of those corporates did, particularly immediately after COVID and in in the eighteen months that that followed that, they were very quick to borrow what we call in in, in the industry terming out their debts. They were able to borrow a lot more money for longer at very low rates. And what that allowed them to do then is kind of hoard a, a, a cash pile ready to spend in the event they needed to, well, in particular on R&D and, and, and capital expenditure. But what that's allowed them to do in the short run is, for some large corporates, is hold that, that, that borrowing in a corporate bank account where they've generated higher returns from higher interest rates. And they've actually been able to reduce their net interest expense. And so it seems like both the consumer and the corporate have, have weathered um, this this kind of era or this current period of higher interest rates in, it, in an extremely intelligent fashion. And, and, and so this is, I guess, come up to my point about what are the challenges? And that is, you know, what we thought at the start of last year didn't play out in the same way. And we've held our hands up and we, and, and, and said, you know, we were, we were wrong to think that. So, so the challenge this year is to think, well, we are still of the view that we will see a recession in 2024. And that hasn't changed. And we're not a broken record. We we think actually unemployment is at the margin starting to weaken, and we think that yes, while while wage growth is 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 improving and it's and it's real wage growth. So after inflation, we can see that in all industries, particularly in the UK, people are being being paid more than the rate of inflation, or their, their at least their wage rises are. What I would say is that um, we are thinking a bit more about. So yes, we think a recession is coming. But what about if we're wrong? And that's kind of uh, the way our, our, our process has evolved a bit is what about what what happens if we're wrong? And that's the, the, the challenge we now set ourselves. We have a base case. I mentioned it's one of a, a recession globally in the next year. Um, but what about if we're wrong? And, and that's how we've kind of thought about the challenge of this year. What about if we're wrong? What do we want to own that has got good upside to it that we're not missing out on because we are being dogmatic about a view in, in, in the medium term, if that makes sense. Um, so, and let me just, um, Brandon, address that question about um, about any advice for advisors looking to navigate 2024, because it is a really um, tough question. And it's not it's not one that I would frame in a in necessarily a kind of, you know, you want to own US equities or Magnificent Seven. I, perhaps if I if, if I brought it back to kind of something that we've been thinking about a lot, it's it's the idea of um, asking asking advisors to to challenge your investment manager perhaps more in 2024. Ask them what they learned from their experience of 2023 and and how that has has improved or or how that might have um, impacted their their own investment decision making process. The Canon Life Portfolio Fund has been around for 10 years now, actually. You know, that anniversary was just this month. And when, when we look back over that time, um, we have we have refined the approach. We have refined the decision-making process over the years to 
take into account how the economy has changed and how global markets have changed. And I think that's really important because multi-asset is very much an evolutionary beast, if that's one for a better word. You know, I, I guess single strategy equity and fixed income managers will talk a lot about we like these companies, we like these bonds, we like the balance sheet of a company, we like their ability to generate you know, robust cash flows. When you're in multi-asset land, you know, you are jack of all trades and master of none. And that, that means you need to be able to refine the way you think about asset allocation because as interest rate environments change, as you know, some countries grow, I'm thinking about China and India, they they have a bigger role to play um in geopolitics and and even the way the world economy comes together. And so what, what I would say to to advisors is is don't be afraid to challenge your your investment manager. Don't be afraid to ask them the hard questions. Um because we talk a lot, and I guess this is natural. For, a, for an insurance company with an asset management arm, we talk about patience quite a lot. And it's not, if I can use this word, it's not a very sexy thing to talk about patience in, in investing and in multi-asset investing. Because I think sometimes clients, sometimes advisors want to hear, you know, the, um, the swashbuckling story about owning lots of emerging markets equity, or we own lots of, you know, Asian high yield, or, you know, you know the, these kind of um, very enticing stories and I, and I appreciate that the investment world has been brought up on narrative it's an important part of how we tell stories to to clients and how we tell stories to ourselves to justify you know making investment decisions but what i would say is that the thing about patience is really important because by by being patient and by having an allocation or a full allocation to different parts of the equity market different regions and different sub asset classes within fixed income what you're doing over that time period is you're compounding a return profile, whether it be from your bond portfolio when it comes to coupon income, whether it be from your equity portfolio when it comes to dividends, whether it be from your, your real estate investment trust, your REITs. You know, there is rental income that comes through that compounds out the return. And that's what sets you on your steady kind of state equilibrium of, of return profile. But where you're able to add alpha, and this is our view in the, uh, in the lease, you're able to add alpha when you have these huge periods of dislocation in markets, when everyone's panicking, there's a lot of risk that's being sold off and, and you know, it's it's headlines in your newspaper, it's headlines BBC News. That is the point when you're able to step back as a patient multi-asset investor and go, right, I think the valuations in these asset classes have gone too far and we can make a, you know, material allocation to them because we think that they will recover back to their, their long run average in terms of prices. And so... What I would say is to advisors, question your your investment managers on on their time frame. Have they been running money for a long time? Is their performance profile lumpy? Because if it is, it implies they're scrabbling back to either make their money back or they're or or they're kind of if they've made lots of good returns in the, in the recent past. You know how is that shaping their 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 decision making in over the next year or two? So um, I guess that I guess that challenge bit is something that we that we think is important. Um, and if I just bring it, bring it back to ourselves, sorry, the final question we're asking ourselves is how do you improve that client journey? And 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 for us, the stability and the patience element, whilst, as I mentioned, not being sexy, we think in the long run does pay dividends. And I, I do think clients ultimately want the steady state, strong return profile over and above the lumpy, um, you know, let's call it sexy return profile, which you can which you can define as you as you say wish to you are listening to ifa talk ifa magazine's weekly podcast 
Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at IFA Magazine. Um, so, yeah, and, and let, let, let me touch upon um, the opportunities part as well, because that is, um, that's really important. And I mentioned about the world of structurally higher interest rates. That's really key when we're, when we're thinking about fixed income. It's really key in asset allocation, actually, going into 2024, because if I think back over the last 10 years, there has been a more of a default position. And we spoke about, spoke about this to some extent in our last podcast. There's been a default within multi-asset to be overweight equities and underweight fixed income. And when yields are, let's call it the best part of 1%, and equities have got this you know, superior return profile, it's very easy for the multi-asset investor to say, I'll be underweight fixed income with overweight equities, and I'll have a you know, and we'll 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 have a kind of um, we'll have a grand time of it, so to speak. But now that the income available in you know investment grade and to, and and to a large extent high yield is that much higher, um, there's a real kind of decision to be made by multi asset investors, and that is you cannot be so quick to dismiss fixed income as an asset class. You now have to think about how how the two knit together. And so when we think about where where we are high conviction, where we are long-term investment opportunities, for us that that lies in particularly short duration. I mentioned short duration because in the last quarter of 2023, we had this huge rally in all asset prices. I and mean, you know, it was driven by an assumption that the Federal Reserve would um would be looking to lower interest rates in 2024. It was driven by global inflation coming down quite quickly, which in itself is a precursor to the Fed's decision making. Um, and actually, I'm not sure the Fed did anybody any favours by almost coming out and agreeing that they would look at interest rate cuts in 2024. But what that means is it, it, it left the long end of the yield curve a bit more vulnerable than the short end of of, of the yield curve, given um, how, how, how the curve shifted throughout the course of the last quarter. But more importantly, when you're looking at short duration credit, and by that I mean investment grade and high yield, you can get um, some really robust companies, you know, credit, you know, credit, high credit ratings, but paying out a very high coupon um, to own short dated debt. And that's quite a powerful compounded and if and I'll, I'll use the example of high yield actually where in short duration high yield you know I, I this is more of an october november story but you were getting you know nearly eight and a half nine percent yields today that number is more like seven and a half eight percent yield but that is a really powerful coupon to receive um from c- corporates which have only got 10 years to sorry two years to pay back that that debt profile and we, we we look at ideas in that space and think, if I can get seven and a half eight percent from a short dated corporate bond, perhaps more high yield investment grade, do I need to own equities in the same way I did before? And if we look at something like the UK equity market, which over the last ten years has generated a total return of about four and a half percent, you know that's just the nature of that particular market, which which we have a fascination with in this country for lots of good historical reasons. But I can get double that in a two-year high-yield bond, which is, is is quite a powerful kind of offset. And and the, the downside protection in in corporate bonds is is a lot stronger than it would be in 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 equity markets. And so I'm giving you two particular examples there. That's how we think about opportunities, and that is not to ignore 
what, what we could achieve in, in short dated credit and how that can improve our, our return profile. Just on equities very quickly, because I think there are, um, we're coming off a year where the only word anyone can talk about is Magnificent Seven and how they are the, the, the bastions of, of equity market um, performance and, and why we're doing anything else because, you know, one day our computers will be run by Microsoft and our cars will be run by Tesla and, you know, we won't have to own anything else. You know, Amazon will bring our, you know, Tesco shopping now. It will all, it will all be a function of one of the one of the seven largest companies in the world. And and I have a lot of sympathy with that view. You have to remember also that the Magnificent Seven had a very bad 2022. <laughs> and if you looked at their return profile over two years, going from the end of 21 to the end of 23, they had this huge cratering in 22 and had this huge uplift in 23 versus the rest of the market. And if you looked at them versus MSCI World, actually over two years, that performance is a couple of percent. It's not. It's not material. And so you have to put these things in context. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think the, the narrative is very easy to to suggest. There's nothing to look past Magnificent Seven, but but we think there is. And, and I will talk to you a bit about because we're slightly more defensively minded, particularly in in the US. We have looked at the utilities sector, so a, a kind of a passive ETF. Um, US utilities option. And the reason why the utility sector is, is so such a powerful opportunity for us with our, let's call it defensive hats on, is that they're very interest rate sensitive utilities because they have a fair amount of debt that they borrow because they're long-term capital expenditures. Um, and, and, and so that plus their defensiveness means that if we do think a recession is coming, utilities offer us this great escape from a traditional S&P tracker which obviously has a fair amount of the Magnificent Seven um, outperformance built into it. Now, I am not for one minute suggesting the Mag Seven are going to underperform. I think they'll carry on doing very, very neatly. But in our in our defensive mindset, we're offsetting some of that. Um, let's call it S and P 500 exposure with with looking at defensive ideas. And we're also looking at, I should say, the healthcare sector and the consumer staples sector, which both had very poor 2023s but we think would do well in a, in a defensive rotation of the equity market. Well, that's interesting. And you, you relayed a very honest assessment there, I think, Jordan, that you did talk about how things are constantly changing and how uncertainty is pretty much always there. So I wonder then, how do the global economic conditions of the day and geopolitical factors, and let's face it, there's some pretty massive ones, at play just now, aren't they? And how do these influence your decision-making process when it comes to actually shaping your investment strategy? Yeah, it's it's a it's a really fair question, and I think it's one that evolves a lot. But I, but I can point to a direct example of where we have thought about the shifting of the geopolitical sands in the last eighteen months, twenty-four months, and thought, what does that mean for positioning in in assets and in our portfolio? And an investment we've made in the last six months has been into gold, one one that we haven't been in before, first time for the the multi asset funds here, and that was driven by by I'd say three or four different factors, but but the key geopolitical factor for us was when when Russia invaded Ukraine in 22, and we think about how um, how the, the ripple effect of the U.S. turning off in effect, dollar payments to the US, in, in effect, 
starving them of the supply of US dollars. You know, the the, the banking system in, in, in Russia was cut off from, from that. And what, what we started to realize is it's quite a powerful tool that the US are able to use there when they're kind of using Cold War-like um, armament, shall we say. But what, it, what, what it showed to us, though, is that if you're if you're going to um if you're going to play with the current geopolitical hierarchy and play is a polite term for somebody who wants to just disband with it and do their own thing and there are you know lots of names outside of 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 europe and, and north america that are prone to that and we can think about um what goes on in the middle east and, and so on there and, and, and even india to some extent who were happy to to lend russia you know um Indian rupees in order for them to, to transact. That, 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 what that created for us was a world where lots of, well, not lots of, but people are going to think about how much they're going to store in US dollars going forward if it means they're going to be dictated to by the US. And so we think gold goes back to being this unique store of value where if, you know, in five years' time, how are Russia going to pay I'm making this up Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia for um arms or for oil well if they can't use dollars i suspect they might have to use gold you know they'll have to use some sort of universal store of value and so i'm not suggesting we're buying gold just purely because the world dynamic has changed but it's an important driver at the margin of what really is a safe haven these days and of course the us treasuries fill that role but we we think gold may have just turned a corner as a, as a kind of the original safe haven so we have an allocation to that and our portfolio is driven by this idea of of, of the us dollar being debased it, it may not be the kind of lender of last resort in in 10 years time and as we get to that point where i guess emerging markets start to distrust the us because they're forcing them to not sell chips to china we just think gold gains in prominence and actually there's a lot of evidence that central banks developed central banks are buying a lot of gold as well in in their portfolios so all these at the margin that just make us think that we we could have some defensive opportunities some defensiveness in the portfolio through through owning gold and that's one example of where geo, geopolitics which took us some time to think about how that evolved um has has you know allowed us to invest in in, in a new kind of asset class for us um thinking about um global economic conditions is is a tough one because I think it's very easy um, or has been quite easy to think about the world in terms of growth on or growth off. And we think about growth quite rightly so through the lens of the US economy. And if the US are growing, everyone else is fine because they'll buy our goods and services and they'll keep the world ticking over. And there's a lot of truth to that. But actually what we've seen in the last year are that some other large you know, developed markets, bastions of economic growth, example, Germany, example, China have struggled. And, and the, the, you know, Germany are in a recession. China will never know if they're in a recession, but they're certainly struggling um, amidst the myriad of policy um, changes that have taken place and, and impacted growth there. And so what we have now is a world which perhaps wasn't so obvious a year or two ago. We do have a world now of desynchronized economic cycles. And so that 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 nuance is really important because what it means is we think the US will go into a recession by the second half of this year. But actually at that same point that that occurs, 
it's highly likely that Europe and China will be recovering because of what they've already gone through because of the correction that's happened in their economy. So it's not a simple case of we're bullish on global economic conditions and therefore we're going to be long risk or long equities as traditionally um, as, as you would traditionally do in, in a multi-asset portfolio. We're trying to think about where we would allocate to within asset classes across those different regions in order to to to, to benefit from um, an uptick in in sort of uh, economic growth and 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 so the global economic conditions is absolutely it's 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 a it's if not the key part of our decision making process it's in the top three and but 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 to do that well we think you have to really think about the nuances within that and and, and not necessarily be um quick to 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 be risk on or risk off and, and i'll and i'll add a final point to that to, to provide some color around it if we look at china and when we look at the problems they've had it has to some extent influenced the return profile in the emerging markets and asia pacific in in, in the last year and a half and of course, China is one third of, of, of the benchmark. It's going to impact the equity return profile within within EM and Asia Pac. But as we as we look forward into in into the next year or two, have have China hit a bottom? Possibly. But what what that means is without trying to forecast a big rebound in China, it makes us at the margin a bit more bullish on that part of the world because they've had their big sell-off. They've had I don't mean sell off in an aggressive way. I just mean they haven't rebounded. They haven't seen the same return profile or the same uplift that we've seen in Europe and, and, and the US and the UK in the last 18 months. And so at the margin, we're happy to have we're happy to be equally weighted in that part of the world, Asia Pac and emerging markets, than we were a year or two ago, where we remain nervous around that particular asset class. But in the same way, we're probably slightly more underweight Europe and the UK. They've had a good return profile. They, they've kind of fallen into near recessionary terms, um, but haven't perhaps had the big drawdown that we, we would expect from an economy that's stuttering along. And so it's about playing the different market cycles at the most opportune time rather than trying to be binary in in our kind of process, should we say. No, makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, Jordan, I think we're coming towards the end of the podcast for today. But as a multi-asset manager, you've obviously had to have to navigate various market segments. We'd be particularly interested to hear your insights into the opportunities you see in mid-cap investments for 2024. Yes, it's um, a really tough one, Brandon, actually. And that's because we spoke about desynchronized economic cycles in, in, in our last um, point. And it's interesting because in the mid cap space, um, given where the interest rate cycle has gone, there has already been a big repricing in particularly in the UK of, of, of mid cap assets and mid cap equities. And I think in many ways that that reflects um, it reflects, well, a couple of things. One, the real issue that mid-cap companies are, are going to struggle to, to refinance at the current rates that we have today. And so that's going to impact their margins and it's going to impact their profitability. And that's why there has been kind of a, a, a sell-off in, in the UK mid-cap space. If we, if, if we drop back a bit further to trustonomics of, of 
Q3 2022, and the UK mid-cap had a real sell-off, you know, because these were domestically focused companies really being impacted by um, the political um, storm that was that was happening there and then. We actually um, went to overweight mid-cap after that particular risk episode that that we kind of think there's value in doing when when things sell off too much because of a because of a, a you know a big um, risk event. We're happy to buy back if, if we think that the value will return. We actually end up trimming back from that in 2023 because the reality of the situation for the UK mid-cap space was that higher financing rates were impacting um, their financing that was impacting their, their overall cost of capital. And the same thing, interestingly, then came into play in the US where they have had their mid-cap, um, the Russell 2000, has had a particularly poor 2023 um, and actually made a lot back in the final two months of the year when we had this big, big Santa rally that, that we spoke about at the start of the program. But I guess my, my point is that in the mid-cap space, we have seen a real de-rating of that particular segment of the equity market. And actually, whilst we're not hugely bullish, we're certainly not bearish anymore. And whilst the global economy and maybe the US, for example, falls into recession and maybe the UK alongside that, which is running at effectively 0% growth, we don't we don't have the same bearishness around or negativity around mid-caps that we did before because a lot of that has been priced in to their um, their valuations already. And so in that in that respect, we, we, we may we may see ourselves add to mid-caps in 2024 when we see the whites of an eyes of recession because that's when we think that people are people, but that's when we think investors are at their most um fearful and that gives us opportunity to buy into an asset class that we're comfortable has sold off quite significantly, remains on the scared list, but then makes it for a for a much um, much more high conviction pick in our portfolios um, when we see that kind of recession indicator come in and and and, and fear pick up materially. Thank you, Jordan. So uh, so we're not going to get too excited then. There's still plenty there to challenge thinking, but. Let me just say thank you, first of all, to you for coming on the podcast. It's been really useful, I, I certainly think, and I hope our listeners will agree with me, uh, to get your candid views. And it's it's always useful to, because you explain things in plain English, which not uh, is, 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 is a gift. And uh, I think we can concur that we quite like the sound of patience over swashbuckling when it comes to investment management, but maybe that's my personal choice. Uh, but also a big thank you to our audience for listening in today. We hope you found it useful, that we hope you found it interesting and do tune in again next week when we'll have another guest full of useful information. Thanks again. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research, and whatever necessary, legal advice, should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.